Hello, and welcome to the Learn It podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim is to introduce you to changemakers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help or not. We're looking at reopening schools in the wake of COVID and how learning is changing. We want to know how to close equity gaps and prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, Jenny Anderson. Head over to learnit.world to join the community or to get in touch. Our guest today is Dr. Pamela Cantor, a child and adolescent psychiatrist who spent two decades focused on trauma. In 2002, Pam founded Turnaround for Children, an organization which translates scientific knowledge about how children develop and learn so that teachers and schools can support children where they are and help them get to where they need to be. I love all my interviews, but this one kind of blew me away. It combines so much brain and learning science, Pam's own personal trauma and what she learned from it, her deep experience in schools and classrooms. She also offers some policy ideas for how we better design schools around individual children with rich, complex histories, rather than sorting and often dismissing them based on narrow academic measures. But if you believed that talent was everywhere, if you believe that context drives the relationship between our genes and what we become, well, you would design a different way. You would design schools much more based on what all kids need with no assumptions about selecting and sorting. You would just design for the whole child. Pam coheres an amazingly complex set of worlds and explains in remarkably simple terms what kids need to thrive. Safe environments, meaningful relationships with caring adults, rich learning opportunities, but also she explains what we need to get there, offering tangible, concrete examples. Two warnings, there are references to sexual abuse in this episode, and it's longer than usual. I'm pretty sure you will thank me for the extra time. Pam, thank you so much for joining me. It is such a pleasure always to talk to you. Thank you so much, Jenny, for having me. Take me back to September 11th, 2001. You were an adolescent and child psychiatrist, and you were asked to lead a citywide epidemiological study of the effects of the attacks on the emotional well-being of New York City public school kids. What did you find out? At the time, I was a child and adolescent psychiatrist, but my specialty was trauma, which becomes really important in the 9-11 era. And I was asked to lead this study of the effects of 9-11 on New York City's public school kids. And that, of course, took me to looking at the data that was coming in. And the data was startling in certain ways because the most profound effects on children were not in the ground zero schools. So when you looked at the city as a whole, the data was lighting up in the communities and schools of deepest poverty. So I went to visit those schools. And what I found, and I'll I'll never forget, walking into an elementary school in the South Bronx, a first grade class, where a teacher was trying to help her kids make sense of the 9-11 attacks, and she asked them to do a drawing. So I'm walking into this first grade class, and a little boy comes up to me with his drawing, Thomas, six years old. And in it, there were these two little boxes in the background with smoke coming out. And in the foreground were two stick figure drawings of boys with guns pointed at each other. And this this drawing 
captured something that we really came to understand from the data. And that that is that the context of children's lives that was producing stress was their local context. It was what it felt like to walk into their schools, what it felt like in their neighborhoods. That was what was causing the tremendous stress that kids were feeling. So then of course I went to visit the schools and wanted to see what was happening. And the striking thing to me was that many of the kids that I was seeing were very similar to the kids I saw in my practice kids that were profoundly affected by the adversities in their lives. And that's really what led to the core insight that led to the founding of Turnaround, which is the understanding of the ways in which adversity affects development and learning. What did you learn from Thomas and how did that lead you to Turnaround? At the time, this is 2001, nobody was talking about stress. So here I am coming out of my child psychiatry background where every single day I am working with children for whom stress is the disruption in their lives. But what it does is it affects mood, it affects concentration, it affects skill development, it affects behavior. And I'm looking at classrooms where these are precisely the struggles that teachers are having, and not just with one child. This is virtually the entire classroom. So for me, the core insight was, wait a second, this is a picture of what adversity does to development and learning. These are kids that are struggling to focus, struggling to concentrate, struggling to to control their behavior, and no one's talking about stress. They're talking about how to get academics better. And that is really what led to the core insight that we have missed something really, really big here in understanding the forces that can disrupt learning. I've heard you say this to me, and I love this. Brains need to be calm to be able to learn. Actually, the thing that folks most remember from that time, things that I was writing about and talking about, was that adversity doesn't just happen to children. It happens inside their brains and bodies through the biologic mechanism of stress. That sentence really became a turning point, an inflection point in schools beginning to understand what they were really looking at. And I have to credit then Chancellor Joel Klein because he heard this then and his support of my organization, Turnaround for Children, and what we wanted to do to enable teachers to understand this and leaders to understand this really was an enormous stimulus to getting these messages out. Before we move on to Turnaround, you have faced your own personal trauma. How has that informed your work and how did you get through that? I will probably forever be an evangelist for the opportunity that can sit inside a trauma if, and this is a big if, Jenny, if there is a person that you know cares about you and and has your back. So for my story, it really starts with this idea that there are many reasons that a person would wanna go to medical school and become a doctor. Uh, Mine were really, really clear. I went to medical school to learn about trauma and how it affects the body and the mind. 
because I knew that I wanted to one day work with children and help them heal from trauma. And that was because I had known it as a child. I grew up in a regular suburban neighborhood with a lot of cousins living nearby. So there were always sleepovers. And so I would sleep over at my cousin's house. And on one of those sleepovers, my uncle came into the room where I was sleeping and sexually abused me. And he said to me, this has to be our special secret. And I was terrified to tell my parents about it. And one of the things that I remember about this was what it felt like as a six-year-old. I was six years old at the time to, to carry this. And I guess the stress of that built up and built up. And one night I had this dream in which I saw myself dying. And I became so panicked that I knew that I, I had to tell my parents about this. And I did. And my parents looked at me and they said, you can never say a word about this to anybody ever because the family will be hurt. And I remember very vividly that my parents seemed to be angry at me. And so, of course, I internalized this as that I was the bad kid. And this secret burrowed its way into every aspect of my childhood um, until the day they died, literally the day they died, because even though their deaths were 10 years apart, their last words to me were exactly the same. They said, I'm sorry. And so it was carried my, in, my entire lifetime. But I did get help when I was 15 years old from this amazing psychiatrist. And I remember the day he looked at me and he told me that I was a pearl in an oyster, a pearl in an oyster. And this was the first time that anybody ever told me that I was good when I had lived my entire life believing that I was bad. So I think you can imagine what happened the day I marched into his office and I said to him, I'm gonna be a doctor. And he looked at me and he said, of course you are. And I thought, does he not know that I have not taken a single science or math course? But like everything else about that relationship, he made me believe I could do it. He was the reason and he was the reason for the belief. So you can't, you can't shake an experience like that once you've had it. Thank you for sharing that. I want to read something that's from your website. To the question of what motivates you, the answer was unfairness to children. Since as far back as I can remember, the idea that all children could not count on fairness and the people that cared for them could not count on belief in their ability to become their greatest selves caused an ache that was physical. I couldn't stand it and I had to do something about it. I just wanted to share that before we get to Turnaround. So it's 2002 and you found this organization, Turnaround for Children, to define the roadmap to get to a better place. You have a book that's coming out and the intro says, imagine a world where every child's life was a succession of opportunities in which they come to know who they are, what they are capable of, and what they can become. I think Turnaround for Children was meant to be the organization to figure out how to do that. So what did you discover? What do we need? What you need is a succession of experiences 
and relationships, much like the one that turned my life around. And that those experiences and relationships absolutely can happen in school, but they can happen in a myriad of places outside of school. But it was a shocker, Jenny, to realize that education was not built around a human development knowledge base. It was built around this idea that there is a set of academic competencies that we need to develop in children. And Turnaround was really founded on the idea that we need to develop children, no matter what their starting point. And if their starting point contains trauma, then there is a whole set of things we have to do to give that level playing field and establish it in a school setting. So children feel connected, they feel safe, they feel that they belong, they are engaged in rich learning experiences. And maybe one of the main things that is not talked about as much as it should be, and that is that these skills that some of us take for granted of an engaged productive learner, these skills are malleable. These skills can be built in any child because development is a malleable experience and it can be nurtured. This isn't, oh, he's smart and she's talented. It is, we can build these things and we can build them from any developmental starting point. Turnaround was about building the tools and resources to support adults in actually doing that. And that's what we do even to this day. Tell us about the three R's. I think it's a useful framework for understanding what kids need. Okay, so let's take first R, relationships. Relationships actually have a biologic effect on the development of the brain. It nurtures connections between brain structures to actually build complex skills. So it ignites learning. Relationships are the most powerful factor we know about to mitigate the effects of stress. There is a biological basis to relationships in the release of a hormone oxytocin, which actually produces resilience to future stress. So in that first R, I wanted to say that this is the rate limiting step, okay? That relationships need to be central to the learning process. Then you get to routines. I'm a big fan of Bruce Perry's work, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, It's a must read to understand trauma. But one of the things that Bruce Perry talks about is that we can actually create a calm brain by creating routines for children so that there is consistency and predictability and scaffolding in their days, in their nights, in their lives, that we all do better when we have routines. So whether it's a meditative practice or whether it's just a beautifully organized and scaffolded classroom, the message to kids is you are safe here, you are gonna be supported here, and the days are gonna have a kind of sameness consistency to them that you can count on. That leads to a calm brain. And then resilience. Resilience is a higher order skill that depends on a whole lot of foundational skills underneath it. So in picking this for the third R, what I wanted to do was to be able to say, yes, let's build self-regulation, executive function, growth mindset, agency in children, 
Because if we build those foundational skills intentionally in our classrooms, we get to resilience. And we know that today in this pandemic, there is absolutely no greater higher order skill that kids are gonna need to rely on than resilience. So there's a ton of developmental science underneath those three R's, but what we're doing at Turnaround is actually breaking them down into practices that teachers can use every day in their classrooms. And they're gonna be told to do a million things. So we had to make it compact and doable. I read this quote, it was in a talk you recently gave, and I'd love for you to just answer it for our listeners. Each of us has 20,000 genes in our human genome, yet in our lifetime, less than 10% of our genes will ever be expressed. What do you think determines what is in that 10%? What's the answer? So the answer is context, the environments, experiences, and relationships of our lives. And, And Jenny, it might surprise you, but I remember the day in my medical school class where the professor said that sentence. My eyes just went wide open, my jaw dropped. I said, what? So this is what the whole nature nurture thing is about, that the environments, experiences, and relationships of our lives are the primary determinant of who we become, including the expression of our genes. So what that backs up to are the key principles of human development. One is the astounding malleability of our brains and bodies. The human brain is the tissue in the human body that is the most susceptible to change from experience. So our fundamental malleability as humans means that context will work on us, these environments and relationships and influence who we become. So astounding malleability, experience-dependent growth, and the role of context. Those are the three fundamental principles of human development. The human development story, if we look at individual humans, is a fundamentally optimistic picture because of all of the reasons we've talked about, malleability, context, experience. But there are forces in our world that create unusually high hurdles for certain children. And we are becoming increasingly aware of that, some of us later than we should have. And these are the forces of racism, stereotype bias, of white supremacy. What if you are a kid who has done everything right, but you're not white and you begin to discover that that effort and perseverance that you've been taught is your gateway to opportunity. But really what you find out is that there are hurdles that are higher for you. So one of the things that sits with my optimism is my activism, (laughs) is that we all have a responsibility to the children for whom the hurdles are too high, not because they can't scale them, but because they shouldn't have to. Let's stick with the biology for just a little bit longer. What does racism do to the brain and to the body of a learner? One of the things that children do is they look to adults and to each other to know how the world sees them, to know whether they are worthy 
of opportunity to know whether the world believes that they are capable of succeeding. We have a very painful history, 400 years of a history that has established in the minds of black and brown children that they aren't as bright or as worthy as other kids. And they've been inoculated with that over and over and over again in the experiences that they have in their schools and in their communities. And that messaging is profoundly influential to identity development and more importantly to belief. Okay, it is the self-regulating step. When I told the story about my doctor, what he gave me an injection of when he said I was a pearl and an oyster, he basically contradicted every message I had received my entire life that I was a dirty thing. And that was the beginning of multiple inoculations of belief and faith and courage that made me braver and braver. So I believe about the issue of race and any other form of adversity in kids' lives, that that's the kind of thing we're going to need to do, and we're going to need to do it a lot. Let's talk about how we do that. You spend a lot of time in schools translating brain science, learning science into practice, into how teachers can make this useful to create the contexts that you're talking about for children. What are the most common mis- conceptions, perceptions that you see, what are we doing wrong? One place that I want to start is in some of the myths, some of the falsehoods. A big one is the talent and skill or a bell curve. That idea basically defined the structure of 20th century schooling because curriculum, classroom design was all oriented to who's in the center of that bell curve. There is no bell curve. We talked about this, that context, environments and relationships are actually going to reveal the skills and talents and potential that kids have. So if we design a system based on assumptions about who has talent and who has skill, and we design our testing, we design our curriculum, we design everything toward that false assumption, you get what has been flawed in the structure of 20th century schooling. But if you believed that talent was everywhere, if you believe that context drives the relationship between our genes and what we become, well, you would design a different way. You you would design schools much more based on what all kids need with no assumptions about selecting and sorting. You would just design for the whole child. So the principles of whole child design that, that actually synthesize an enormous amount of science, but they're gonna sound really simple. Developmental relationships, a culture of safety and belonging, rich, engaging instructional experiences, intentional development of those 21st century skills and mindsets that all successful learners have, and integrated systems of support. 
if there are district leaders listening to me, they, they'll say, well, wait a second. We believe in relationships and we believe in supports and we believe in belonging. Okay, guess what? We're not doing that. If you put relationships at the center of learning, then you have to rethink the school schedule because teachers need the time for that. The issue isn't whether we believe relationships are important. It's have we designed a physical setting, an emotional setting? Have we trained teachers and prepared them to know how to have relationships with children? That's not necessarily something that's instinctual for all. But what, what I am saying is that these five elements need to be integrated, they need to have a coherence, and what they need to become are exactly what we mean by the experiences that can drive the development of the brain, build complex skills, and unlock the potential in each and every child. Okay, then what does that mean for measurement? What are we measuring and what should we be measuring? The measurement we use in schools is based on a bell curve. What we ideally want is the ability to measure multiple dimensions of student growth. So we want mastery level competencies. We want those essential building block skills. We absolutely have to measure well being. And we need to have multiple examples and artifacts of what students can do. So what I've just described for you is a comprehensive individual learner profile. This is where measurement needs to go. And this is what I and my group and colleagues are working on. It's a big R&D project. It will take years to do. And nobody is going to give up standardized testing all that easily. But if we can produce a plausible alternative to that that reflects what we know, that success is multidimensional, learning is multidimensional, well-being is critical to understand with kids, then one of the things a new administration can do is call for a task force, a commission, whatever name you want to put to it, and get the best minds in this country thinking about how do we measure individual growth in children across multiple dimensions and across time? We got the coronavirus vaccine. We can do this. So what does whole child design look like in practice? Give us some examples. There actually are some really, really great examples of this going on right now. The key thing, though, is that they haven't been scaled. At best, they are networks of 100 or 200 schools. But here's what you'd see if you walked in the door. First of all, all of these settings are student-centered. Students are guiding their own learning. Every child has at least a strong connection to one adult who is very, very engaged in helping them scaffold their own learning. There are lots of examples where a child coming from a non-white background sees and feels their own history being represented, their own culture being represented, and the materials they're using for learning actually are culturally familiar because it's so much harder to learn when you're constantly learning in somebody else's language. So you see this kind of cultural sensitivity, cultural competence. 
The other thing we know about rich learning experiences is they need to be meaningful to the child. Children like to solve real problems. So when learning is inviting the agency of kids, then these questions about how do you motivate a child? <laughs> well, you don't have to motivate a child if the child is grabbed by something they want to solve. So when you think about places like Valor Collegiate or places like Summit Learning or the New Tech Network, all of these schools, the student is the agent of their experience and the adults are there to loan them courage when they need it, help them handle a failure when it happens, scaffold a project to change the world that they wanna do. And all of these things that have to do with core academic skills and content, they're all woven in. Okay, those competencies are developed, but they're developed with relevance and meaning to the kid. I was listening to your podcast, and we will include your podcast, which is great, in the show notes um, with Diane Tavener, who runs Summit School. She <laughs> was saying something very specific about their morning ritual, which translated from the building to virtual very well, which was every morning they do a provocation of joy, of some something fun um, and collective, a meditation that helps them prepare to learn, and planning. They have some time that's allotted to them to think about how they're going to reach their goals that day, that week, that year. So simple, and yet so not what happens, I think, in many schools. One thing that I thought of as you were talking um, that's worth lifting out too of the places where this is so successful. And I mentioned Valor Collegiate because what I love about that school is that it is extraordinary from the perspective of kids reflecting on themselves, kids finding inspiration within themselves and deeply, deeply close to the adults in the school. And at Valor, everything that is asked of the kids in terms of reflection is actually done by the teachers. The teachers actually do the same reflection groups. They call it their circle, their compass. And it, it is a wonderful practice because it is not only the kids, it's the entire adult and student community that are relating to experience and talking about experience in the same ways, which means that vulnerabilities are talked about and shared, and it feels normal to, to be talking about things like that. The other thing you talked about is the simplicity. I don't know whether you've built a house from scratch or you've reno renovated a house, but if we build a house from scratch, we have a shot at the coherence that I was talking about for whole child design. What is often not as well understood is how much we have to undo in our 20th century system in order to build the right house. And that involves the politics of education, the funding of education, some of the accountability issues of education, it puts us in the position of having to renovate something as opposed to build something. And Summit, of course, the example you gave and Valor are things that were built from scratch. 
you go into these schools, you present the science. What is the receptivity to this? And what do you see as the chief obstacles to getting to this vision? The honest answer, I've seen both. (laughs) I've seen and experienced both. But I have seen that the science grounding is so compelling to teachers and validating for teachers because it maps to what they see every day. And they would much rather see a child who is depicted as responding to stress than a child who is not being a good kid. I mean, they want to view children that way. And instinctually, they went into teaching in order to be able to be in that role for kids. So the the science of learning and development has been a huge unlocking mechanism for the teachers that we work with. And it melts resistance, for sure, as long as you combine theory with practical tools that they can walk out with and use like today. If it's just theory, then it's just gonna be a recipe for frustration. When I answer the question, what do I think is the biggest barrier in all of this? I do think that that our accountability mechanisms are a barrier, the narrow view contained in them of what student success is, the, the reliance on standardized instruments as opposed to a whole set of artifacts. I mean, if you wanted to know what your kid was doing in school and all you gave all they gave you was a number, you know, he scored a B on a quiz. What has he done? What compositions has he written? What problems has he solved? What are the artifacts that tell me all of what my child is learning? I, I don't know whether you have heard this yet, but one of the biggest shocks to parents today is actually finding out what their kids are learning every day for good or bad. Pam, tell me about the teacher in a DC public school. There were many experiences that I had doing professional development with teachers. And I talk about the importance of building these caring and trustful relationships with kids. And I was explaining the biological reason for that, triggering the release of oxytocin, how it produces greater focus and attention. And a teacher raised his hand and said that he had the chills. And he said, you know, I've been trying to figure out why Mr. G, who was another teacher in the school, gets such better results from his kids than I do. And I said, so what did you learn from what I said? He said, I scream at my kids. I yell at them. I create a classroom in which they're frightened of me. And now what I'm hearing is that Mr. G is doing just what you said. He's building relationships with his kids and his kids want to do well. They want to do well for him. And what I understand happened after that is that he went to Mr. G to observe his class and to see how he does what he does. And a couple of years later, he wrote to me and he said, this changed the way he taught forever. 
and opened real doors with his students. And what I love about the story is my understanding is that they used to view Mr. G as a softy. So he was viewed inside the building of somewhat of a pushover. And instead, there was more at play. Does COVID accelerate this vision or does it absolutely slow it down? I think in the midst of a disruption, being able to say that there is a scientifically grounded framework that helps us create integrated designs for learning and for development is actually a wonderful thing because we do have a roadmap today. We do know a lot more than we did before. And we have technology that could enable us to get that knowledge to places that it hasn't had access to. So I I see the opportunity in the disruption. I would be remiss not to tell you the big risk I see. And that is that the hole is way, way, way deeper for certain kids. So if we don't create accelerants so that kids can really get to a level playing field, and you might say, what's an example of an accelerant? And what I would refer you to is Benjamin Bloom's Two Sigma paper. That Two Sigma paper says that if you provided a student with high intensity mentoring, so now think relationship, belonging, rich instructional experience, support, all of the things I was talking about that are contained in the one experience of high dose mentoring and tutoring, that is what Bloom studied. And there was a two standard deviation change. We need accelerants like that. So if you say, how do I solve that problem? It's human capital. So let's solve it. Okay, so now for the fun part of the conversation. Pam, what is your favorite book about learning? Dan Siegel is in many ways a soulmate because his academic work is pretty wonky and complicated, The Developing Mind. But if you go to his website, everything is distilled into videos and how-tos for parents and for kids. And one of his best, best, best books that is so relevant today is called Brainstorm, which is about the tumultuous, incredible world of the adolescent brain. And that should be eye-opening to parents to learn that everything that causes them consternation in adolescence is actually wonderful, and it's going to produce the expression of a child's potential. I definitely need to read that as I have a 12-year-old who seems to be going on to 19, so I can't wait to read that. (laughs) Read Brainstorm. Any book you would mention that isn't necessarily about learning, but that you just love? I have reread a huge number of James Baldwin's books recently. I found his language a way that I could start to access what I didn't understand about race. Just as a note to listeners, Pam sent to her staff a talk to teachers by James Baldwin, which we will link to in the show notes, which is a beautiful speech, haunting, honestly, in the context of how little has changed, really. Mm -hmm. Okay, last one. What are you binge watching? Everybody's watching The Queen's Gambit. So that's for sure sort of my kind of thing. But there are two other things to tell you about. One is called The Biggest Little Farm. It's an extraordinary story 
of a couple who get a dog from a shelter and how that dog leads them into a completely different life than the life they had. And the other, which is a huge favorite, is the octopus teacher. Pam, this conversation has been illuminating, emotional, intense, and wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Jenny, for this opportunity. There was so much in this conversation I sat with, returned to, pondered, the massive gap between what we know about child development and supporting kids and how school design actually often undermines that, the profound impact of stress on learning, and the tremendous opportunity that exists to heal trauma and meet kids where they are, rather than where a bunch of standardized tests say they should be. Pam's own story, painful yet hopeful, the role of racism and bias and stereotype threat to learning. It's hard not to be overwhelmed by how far we have to go. But I return to the basis of Pam's optimism. Kids need safe environments, rich with learning experiences and relationships with adults who love them. With that, they can heal and thrive. She pairs that optimism with activism, because as she says, we all have a responsibility to the children for whom the hurdles are too high, not because they can't scale them, but because they shouldn't have to. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.